Open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. If you don't have a Bible, our text this morning is actually in the insert. If you don't know where Zechariah is, if you go to Matthew, two books to the left. Zechariah, probably an unusual text for a Resurrection Sunday, but I hope and trust one that will still be edifying and encouraging. One of the frequent questions asked of Jesus or by Jesus was as to his identity. The gospel accounts are are filled with people asking the question, who are you? Tell us plainly, who are you? The Pharisees sent a delegation to John the Baptist asking, who are you? Are Are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? Pilate asked Jesus to tell him plainly who he was, and Jesus on at least one occasion, asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And who do you say that I am? The issue of identity, the Lord Jesus Christ, is, is no small New Testament theme. Likewise, today it is equally important that we understand who he is because so many today will, will acknowledge some allegiance, some reverence, some tipping of the hat to the Lord. And when you get down to start talking, well, who do you believe he is? That's when the differences come out. And in Zechariah chapter 10, we see four messianic titles, four ways, I think, of looking at Jesus that might be unfamiliar. And precisely because they're unfamiliar, I think they might be helpful. Often familiarity breeds contempt. And, and so you say, who is Jesus? Well, he's the Christ. Amen. Well, he's my Savior. Amen. He's the Son of God. Amen. But these rich, deep, biblical titles for images for Christ, for Jesus, are so familiar at times, they can become meaningless. Jesus is the Christ, but if I were to say to you, what does Christ mean? It's certainly not his last name. Christ is Greek for the Hebrew Messiah or Messiah, which is Hebrew for the English, the anointed one. And then that begs the question, well, what's this anointed one? And so these titles, these names mean things, and their meaning can be lost on us by familiarity. But in a simple verse and a half in Zechariah chapter 10, we're going to look at four titles, four ways of describing Jesus that I think are going to be largely unfamiliar. Imagine someone asking the question, who is Jesus? And the answer is, he's the tent peg. I don't know how often you've heard that answer. He's the battle bow. He is the cornerstone. That might be a little more familiar. So let's read our verse in, uh, in Zechariah and try to answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? Zechariah 10, verse 3b, we're starting in the middle, to verse 4. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. For from him shall come the cornerstone, and from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. So what we're in the middle of is a section in Zechariah of God promising the future restoration, the future deliverance of national Israel. Israel at the time of Zechariah's writing is little. They are less than 50,000 strong in the land. They are a footnote in world history, whereas formerly they were a world power. Now they don't even have a king. 
They had a governor named Zerubbabel, and he may have even passed from the scene. They've been under foreign rule. Now the Greek, well, soon the Greeks, now the Medo-Persians, and formerly the Babylonians. Not being independent even up and through the day of Jesus, whether we're under the Roman rule. And yet God in Zechariah is, is speaking many things, but one of the things he promises is the restoration of Israel. And so he gives them these promises. What he promises them is this, if you look in the verse. The Lord, because he cares for his flock, because he is the good shepherd, because he is zealous for his people, he's going to strengthen the house of Judah. You remember Israel is divided into 12 tribes, made up of 13 tribes. There's 13, 12 tribes of Israel. There's two half tribes. That's Okay. Um, I, I find that intriguing. The 13, 12 tribes of Israel. The Lord of hosts cares for his flock, but the house of Judah in particular, he promises, he will make them like his majestic steed in battle. So the imagery shifts from poor sheep, sheep who need a shepherd, sheep who are weak and defenseless and powerless, to a war horse for battle. This is all going to be because the Lord is going to strengthen, the Lord is going to preserve, the Lord is going to develop the tribe of Judah. And then we get some specifics from him, and the him I take to mean from the tribe of Judah. From him shall come the cornerstone. From him the tent peg. From him the battle bow. From him every ruler, all of them together. Now, these are four ways of speaking, I believe, of the coming Messiah. As, as early as Genesis 49, when Jacob is prophesying on his on his staff at the end of his life, he predicts the scepter of rule will not depart from the tribe of Judah. Judah is the tribe, the kingly tribe. Long before Israel is even a nation, Jacob is prophesying about which tribe rule and leadership shall come from. And so he's going to strengthen the house of Judah so that from the house of Judah will come the cornerstone, the tent peg, the battle bow, and every ruler, all of them together. And precisely because these are, I think, unfamiliar messianic titles and themes, I think it will be helpful for us this morning to look at them. And what they share in common is this, this picture of the battling king, the warrior king. The, the title for God most common in the book of Zechariah is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. That emphasis is being made again and again and again. So let's, let's dive into our study who is Jesus Christ? First, he's the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone or the headstone or the, the center stone. This can refer to uh, the cornerstone of a building, the first and primary stone to be laid. It also can be used to speak later in the Roman arches of the centerpiece stone. And this, this, this concept of the Lord sending a cornerstone is clearly a messianic title. It has appeared in scripture previously in Isaiah 8 and in Psalm 118. Listen to Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So this cornerstone, previously spoken about in Scripture, is going to come. And the picture here is one of authority, centrality. From the tribe of Judah will come one who everything else is built around. Or as, say, the author of Hebrews says, the author and perfecter of our faith. Everything is, is built around. This is the foundation. And I submit to you that the foundation of Christianity is Christ. This should be no surprise to us. Christianity, if it's about anything, is about Jesus Christ. And God 
says he is the cornerstone. Jesus is the one to whom all things in heaven and earth are reconciled. Paul in Romans 12 says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Do you understand that everything in the universe, you, your, your clothes, this podium, exists from, through, and to Jesus, for him. He is the cornerstone around everything else radiates. But more to the point, turn, turn in your Bibles to Luke 20. Jesus himself takes this messianic title upon himself. Jesus himself helps us understand what to make of this. What does it mean Jesus is the cornerstone? In Luke chapter 20, when his authority is challenged, Jesus gives a parable and ends by quoting Psalm 118 and and taking the, the title cornerstone upon himself. Let's just read Luke 20, starting in verse 1. Keep your thumbs in Zechariah. We'll be back. But Luke 20, starting in verse 1. On that day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, Why do you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So the first instance, they come up and they want credentials. They want proof. Jesus has been doing miracles, which are credentials, messianic credentials, It's not good enough for them. And he demonstrates that they're not really interested in truth. You see, when you're having to weigh your answer simply by political expediency, it's clear you're not interested in truth. They're not saying, well, is it true John's baptism is from God or not from God? That that, that doesn't enter into their deliberation. Which one will give us the greater advantage? They realize they lose whichever way they answer, so they say, we don't know. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants, and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, and the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son, because they will respect him. When the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, This, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So Jesus takes this notion, what what are we to make of he is the cornerstone? What, what, What significance does that have? Well, in the story of the parable of the tenants, Jesus lets us know. that The vineyard owner is clearly God. And the tenants are those people who claim allegiance to God, those people who would claim to work in his vineyard. In Jesus' day, it's the Jews and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I'd say today it's probably those who call themselves Christians. And the Lord wants some 
response from these people. Here it's payment, but it's clearly the issue of authority. It's clearly the issue of, of homage and obedience. And the Lord of the, the vineyard sends his servants, and they beat them and drive them out. No, they don't want to be told what to do. No, they don't want to be ruled. And finally, the, the, the owner of the vineyard sends his son, thinking, well, they will at least respect him, and they kill the son, imagining that they will somehow inherit the vineyard. And Jesus then says, this is what's happening to him. He will be killed by these vineyard workers, crucified. He says, this is exactly what is written about the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So, so what does it mean that Jesus is the cornerstone? What it means, and here's the blank at the bottom, either you will be ruled by him, either you will receive him as the landlord's son and the rightful heir and ruler, or, you, or he will crush you. That's what Jesus says. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It's, it's easy from a distance when the landlord and his servants and his son are far away to say, we work for the landlord. It's easy to say we're Christians. It's easy to say we love God when God and his demands and his son are far removed over there. The proof in the pudding comes when the landlord, when God sends us something and requires something of us. Jesus is speaking to people who would emphatically insist they are the people of God. They are the Yahweh people. They are the Lord God's faithful people. These are people who've memorized the Bible. This is very religious people he's talking to. Very, very religious people he's talking to, and they stumble over the stone. I, I think that can happen in our day as well. Very religious people who name the name of Christ will go straight to hell. Very, very religious people, people who come every Sunday, people who help in Awana, people who, who do all sorts of things. Jesus said many on that day will say, Lord, Lord. Many. The issue here is who is Jesus? Is he the one who has the right to rule your life? Is he God's son who gets to call the shots? Or are you comfortable with a Jesus who's far removed, you know, off in heaven somewhere? Nice and safe. We'll tip the hat, we'll sing a song. And then we'll go about our merry way and do as we please. Is he the son of God? Is he the one who has the right to take charge of your life, of God's vineyard? That's, that's the first question. He is the cornerstone. Do you recognize that, him as having that role in your life? All of your life revolves around, centers around, is coordinated by him. You're building your life up on him. He's the head of the church. That's another way of speaking, the centrality or do you build yourself as the cornerstone and your desires and your wishes and, and your pleasures and your wisdom direct your life? That, that's, that's the first challenge. Either you will be ruled by him, you will accept him as that cornerstone, or, as Jesus says, he will fall on you and crush you. Second, he's the tent peg. Now, there is a very uncommon messianic title. Even on those posters that you see with the names of Jesus, the names of God, I don't think I've ever seen yet the tent peg. Probably because it's not a very common idiom in English. It is in Hebrew. It is in Hebrew. And the picture of a tent peg is something which holds things fast. It's either used to speak of that which is holding the tent together, or it can also be used of a peg on a post to hold heavy weights. Listen to how it is used in Isaiah 22. I will fasten him, the Lord speaking of a king, like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house, and they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house. 
You get the notion? God is speaking of an individual, and I'll fasten him like a tent peg. He'll hold that together, and they'll put the honor upon him. Now, in this instance, he goes on to say, in that day declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and I will cut down, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. But you get the idea. It's a picture of that which bears weight, that which makes things secure. It's again, if the cornerstone is that which holds the whole house together, the tent peg is that which keeps the tent up. It's overlapping, but subtly different. In Isaiah 9, 6, again, the same imagery of this tent peg is used. But here's the picture, and here are your blanks at the bottom. This one who's coming from the tribe of Judah is utterly dependable and sure. Utterly dependable and sure. Trust him. You know, we are constantly looking in our life for that which will give us peace, that which will give us safety, that which we can rely upon, that which can hold the weight, if you will, of our lives and our hopes and our dreams. And yet constantly in this life, we are, we are disappointed by those things that promise that. The, the stock market will, will promise to give you protection, and it can fail you. The housing bubble of a few years ago disappointed many people. It couldn't hold the weights of expectation. And this is no new thing for us as we read the news and we look around us. As early as um, the, the poet W.B. Keats in 1919 wrote a famous poem called The Second Coming with a much quoted line perhaps you will recognize. He wrote this in the aftermath of World War I after seeing the carnage and the destruction. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. And he's right. There's a principle of entropy in the world. And no matter what type of peace, no matter what type of order, no matter what type of security we make, it will fall apart. People thought the Roman Empire could never fall. It fell. People thought that their retirement savings, their, their stocks and accounts would save them and, and provide them. They may, they may not. There's nothing in this world that will ultimately hold together for long. And we're tempted to believe, no, no, no. This, this thing is different. This thing that I'm, I want and I need, this thing will give me security. This relationship, this, this boy, this girl, or this job, or this car, or this house, or this set of friends, or whatever. Trying to give cohesion, holding our life together. And, and the Messiah to come, he's, he's the one who can do that. On, only Jesus Christ can bear the weight of your life and your hopes and your dreams. L listen, to, listen to this description in Isaiah 9, talking about the one who can handle the weight of the world on his shoulders. You, you know this passage. It's a Christmas passage. Unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. So here's the one who can hold that secure. Here's the one that we can entrust the, the rule of the entire world to. Here, here is the one who will not falter. He will not slip. And not only is this true of Jesus in a, in a, in a global, national, geopolitical sense, and it is, and I think in Zechariah that's its primary meaning. From the tribe of Judah will come the one who will hold it all together, the one who will be able to hold on to and rule securely. But it's also true in the sense individually. Remember, this passage starts with God caring for his flock. And, and many hundreds of years later, when the good shepherd came in John 10, he says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. And I give them eternal 
life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And that same security, that, that same dependability that enables Jesus to be the one who can and will rule the world and the nations is the same dependability and surety that means you can trust him with your soul, with your life, with yourself. He is sure. We live in an unstable world, like shifting sands, and yet here is one from the tribe of Judah who will not move. And so the scriptures, and, and I, and we would implore you if, you, if you've never turned to Christ and recognized him as, as the rightful ruler of this vineyard, of this world, Please do that. You can trust in him. He is dependable. Trust him. He he will not let you down. Husbands, wives, children, employers, money will let you down. It is unstable. Solomon says it's like grasping after the wind or soap bubbles. And here is one from the tribe of Judah who says, Come unto me. Lay your burdens upon me and I'll give you rest. He is sure. He is the tent peg. He can handle the weight all that you can give him. In your prayers, in your fears, he will not move, he will not falter. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is the tent peg. He is utterly dependable and sure. Trust in him. Don't trust in other things. Trust in him. Third, he is the battle bow. A little clearer here, an imagery of military might. Pretty uniformly throughout Scripture. As early as just a chapter early in Zechariah, the battle bow is referenced. This is one of the premier weapons of the time of Zechariah writing. Of course, they didn't have guns and such. So, so the battle bow, stronger and more powerful than the hunting bow, is, is really an example of military power. Let me get back now to this sort of warrior king motif. The Lord of hosts. So not only is is this one coming from the tribe of Judah, the cornerstone, the one to whom everything is built around, the one who holds everything together, and he is the tent peg. He is sure. He is stable. He can take the weight of all nations on his shoulders. He can rule. He will not falter, and you can trust him with yourself. He's also a powerful warrior. And that becomes very prominent in Zechariah in the later chapters. I want you to jump with me in Zechariah to chapter 14. Chapter 14, speaking of a future day of world conflict, pick it up in verse 1. Behold, the day is coming from the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Not too big of a stretch in today's age to imagine something like that happening. I don't know when this will happen, but it will and the city shall be taken, the houses plundered, the women raped. Half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So we got a picture of the nations gathering on Jerusalem. They begin to attack. Jerusalem's not faring well. Half the people are taken captive. And then the last and right moment, verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem and on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split. If you remember, Jesus ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives, and the angels who stood there and spoke to the disciples said, as you've seen him depart, so he will return. His foot will touch down. 
the resurrected Lord on the Mount of Olives when he fights for his people. He is the battle bow. And, and this picture of Jesus as a warrior is not limited to, to Zechariah. If, if you go to, you don't need to turn there, but I'll read to you again a much familiar passage in Revelation. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name which no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on the white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. This, this tent peg, this cornerstone from the tribe of Judah is also the one who has unrivaled military power. And in Revelation we see the Lord Jesus show up dressed in white. I've heard it said if you show up to a fight or a battle wearing white, you're pretty confident how that will turn out. And the Lord Jesus, it's really kind of anticlimactic. Our, our men's group went through this, and there's all of this setup. You've got all the nations of the world, and then you've got Jesus coming on his horse with the armies of heaven behind him, and there's this pause. And if I were a, a cinematographer making a movie, I'd really be disappointed by what happens next, because how does the battle end? He opens his mouth and speaks. And it's done. There, there is no gunfire. There is no rockets. The risen Lord is so mighty, so powerful. The power of his word, which is now upholding all things, the power of his word, which spoke everything into creation, is powerful enough to subdue all nations and all peoples. And what this means for us, then, is either you've got G the risen Lord, the Lord Jesus, on your side fighting for you. He will either fight for you, or you are his enemy today, and he will fight against you. Here's the one with unrivaled power. All the armies of the world, all the stockades, all of the weapons made by man and never will be made by man, futile against this one who shows up and speaks. And Paul says in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? This, this Messiah can be for you. He can fight for you. Paul in Romans 12 talks about, don't take, don't take revenge for yourself, but make way for the wrath of God. Get out of the way. Let God fight for you. This, this Messiah can, can fight for you, can fight your battles, can give you strength. Or you can endeavor to fight him and you will lose. Jesus warns the church, again, of professing Christians. Just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean you're safe from this. The church of Pergamum in Revelation 12, caught up in false doctrine. Jesus says this, has John write this, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Written to the church, the professing body of believers at Pergamum. God's word is his weapon of choice. Far better to be wounded by his word this morning and live and to harden your hearts and face him on the final day and be destroyed. He is the battle bow. He, he is the one who will conquer the world. And finally, from the tribe of Judah, from him, every ruler, all of them together. Now, 
This draws upon the Davidic covenant, which is a promise God made to David back in, in 2 Samuel 7. You can stay here. You can turn there. I'll read it. But God makes a, makes a covenant, which is a conditionless promise to David. David wants to build a house for God. He wants to build the temple. And God says, no, no. That was a nice thought, David. But rather, I will build a house for you. Well, listen to this. The Lord declares to you, this is, this is um, Samuel speaking to David. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are filled up and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away before you in your house, in your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So immediately in this promise, God's talking about Solomon, the one who would build the temple, the one who would sin and require discipline. But from this, he says, from your body, which is, and since David is from the tribe of Judah, this is another further way of conditioning. From the tribe of Judah, from the Davidic line, will come all these leaders, will come all these rulers. And so what the Lord is saying here, yes, he will strengthen the tribe of Judah so that from Judah, every ruler, all of them together will come. And that will ultimately culminate in the final ruler. See, this, this can play out one of two ways, two ways. Either David has a son who has a son who has a son who has a son, world without end, amen. Or eventually, there comes along a special son who dies and yet death cannot hold him. Who in dying swallows up death. And then this son will reign forever. From the tribe of Judah, the Lord says, will come every ruler all together. This is true. This is true. From the tribe of Judah has come the one who is the king of kings and lord of lords. Now, you may wonder, what does this have to do with Easter and, and Resurrection Sunday? Well, turn in your Bibles finally to Philippians 2. We'll close here. Jesus, when he came, came humbly. Zechariah prophesied this. Behold, your king comes, humble and lowly is he, mounted on a donkey, having salvation with him and righteous. And this is precisely what the Jews stumbled over. When we said the, the stone that was rejected became a stumbling stone, has become the cornerstone. It was precisely because they were looking for a mighty military king. It was precisely because they were looking for someone who could thrash the Romans that this Jewish peasant and carpenter was a stumbling block for them. And so they did not heed Scripture, and they crucified him. When the Lord of the vineyard sent his son, they killed him. And it was precisely through that death, burial, and resurrection, precisely through that, that the Lord Jesus ascends to his kingly rule. You see that the result of the resurrection, one of the results of the resurrection. There are many. One of the results is that we now know that we can have life. He was killed for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. But another is this is how Jesus becomes enthroned as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Listen to Philippians 2, verse 5 through verse 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, consequently, as a result, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." It is precisely because the Son humbled himself. It is precisely because he hung on a tree for our sins. It is precisely because he died and was raised again that he becomes, he is honored by his Father, he is exalted to be the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who who will come as the battle bow and defend Israel. It is precisely because of that, the result of the resurrection is we now have this type of Savior. Described here in Zechariah, the cornerstone, the tent peg, the battle bow. Yes, there's a sense in which it's always been true of him. Behold the one who's born, king of the Jews. There's a sense in which he's the lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. But in our experience of time, it is the resurrection and consequent exaltation that enters Jesus into his mediatorial reign, his rule. And now he waits while his enemies are made a footstool for his feet, And he will return to claim his rightful dominion, namely us. Which fills in the blank here then. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Worship him. Worship him. Now I just want to make this final point as we prepare for our final song. There were many people in Jesus' day who stumbled over this stone, who didn't recognize him for who he was, who didn't respond appropriately. The the, the parable of the vineyard workers is most telling. People who, if you came up, they might be wearing the company shirts. You know, the Lord's vineyard. And as long as the Lord was far away and his demands were far away, they were quite happy to identify themselves as those workers at the Lord's vineyard. But when the master of the vineyard, when the Lord would send people to require things of those workers, they bristled, they flexed, and they said no. And eventually when push came to shove, they became violent. Very, very religious people. People who had memorized the Old Testament murdered the Son of God. It wasn't a bunch of heathen tax collectors. It wasn't a bunch of prostitutes and publicans who were crying out for his death. It was very, very religious people who knew the scriptures inside and out, who called themselves by the name of God. And so it's easy for us today when we are so familiar with Jesus' name, when his name shows up on t-shirts and coffee mugs and beach towels, to say, yeah, I'm a follower of Christ. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I work in his vineyard. So I ask you to take the test of Zechariah 10, 4. Is he your cornerstone? Do you recognize him as that? Do you give him that place? Are you willing to order your life around him? When push comes to shove, who runs your life? When push comes to shove, who orders your life? Who calls the shots? Who's the master of your vineyard? He's the tent peg. What are you depending on? What's carrying your hopes and dreams? You know, we oftentimes find those things out 
when the things we put our hopes and dreams on fail, when your health gets hit, are you shattered? If you potentially are facing losing your home, is your world unravel? If your children don't well at school, is everything over? The stocks take a dip. Will you, like many in the Great Depression, despair of life itself? What, 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 have you, what are you hanging and trusting upon to, to be dependable? There's a Savior who is utterly dependable and sure. He will not turn anyone away. He, he welcomes all. He calls all to come. Who, who will not disappoint. You know, it's, it's been said that Christianity has... has not been tried and found wanting, it's been found hard and left untried, frequently. Here is one who is utterly, utterly dependable and sure. We should trust him. And we can so in today's day so emphasize the humble Jesus. You know what I mean? Blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Nordic Jesus. He wears a white robe. There's a little glowing phosphorescence around his head. He's traveling with his friends. He's always smiling like somebody on a Mentos commercial. And... (laughs) And yes, there's a sense in which for a time, Jesus walked among us and he veiled his glory. That time is over, my friends. We, we, the Lord to whom we have to deal is not a humbled, glory-veiled Lord. Last time I checked in the book of Revelation, he looked rather different. When he shows up in Revelation 19, he looks very, very different. And it's easy to have this humbled, tame, safe Jesus we tip our hat to. Yes, I love Jesus. Jesus is a friend of mine. The Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of Scripture, this warrior king. Is that how you know him as well? Because that is true as well. And ultimately, do you recognize him as the ruler of the universe, but more importantly, the ruler of your life? Have you come to a point where you've trusted him? Have you come to a point where you've put your faith in him, where you've turned from building upon the foundation of your own thoughts, your own wisdom? You've seen the futility of, of trying to do things your way. You've, you've kicked against the goads long enough. Peace, peace can be yours. You can have peace with this king. You can have peace with this king. He can fight for you and not against you. He can, he can carry the weight of all of your hopes and of your sin, most importantly. He can carry the weight of all of that. Will you worship him? Will you, will you praise him for who he is? Will you, will you recognize his right to rule? And we're going to close in prayer, and we're going to sing our final song, which just sings about that exactly. If you have any questions about this, please talk to me or one of the elders. Our greatest desire would be that you would truly be his, that you would know this Savior, this Christ, this Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord God, we, we just rejoice that you did indeed strengthen the house of Judah, that you did indeed send the one who is the cornerstone to whom all things are from and through and to, that you did indeed send one who is sure, dependable, unmovable, resolute, unchanging, and we can cast ourselves upon, and who will bear the weight, and who bore the weight of our sin. Lord, we rejoice that you will fight for us and that if you are for us, no one can be against us. No power in heaven or on earth can stand against your will. But Lord, what a terrible thing to be your enemy. 
to be at war with you and ultimately face you as enemy, Lord. It's my prayer that no one here would, would, would do that. No one here would, would leave at enmity with you. And finally, Lord, we, we rejoice that your Messiah has been exalted and given a name above every name, that he is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Lord, as we look around the nations in this world and as they totter and as some rise and some fall, it can be so discouraging and we rejoice that above them all is a king who sits enthroned forever, is a king whose rule will not end, who will never have to be voted in a second time for office, who, who will rule the nations and judge the nations with equity, and we would worship that king. We would honor that king. Receive our praises now, pleasing to you, a fragrant aroma. In Jesus' name, amen.